Well, as the baskets are making their way around, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're spending the five weeks of July in a series in the Psalms, Psalms for the Summer, and Psalms in, Summer in the Psalms, I guess is actually what that says. Uh, <laughs> so we are making our way through some of the Psalms over the course of July, and this morning we are going to give our attention to Psalm chapter 13. So please turn there with me, the 13th Psalm. It's easy to imagine that the chair creaked as he lowered himself into it, a man well into his 60s and scooted forward to his writing desk and picked up his pen in his hand. Something he had done many times before, he had picked up his pen to defend historic Christian doctrines. He picked up his pen to delight and incite the imagination with fiction stories that always told a bigger and better story, but that wasn't his intention this time. It had only been a couple of weeks since his wife had passed away, and he found himself trying to feel his way through the fog of his own despair at her absence. He picked up his pen and he wrote these words. It is not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so, there's no God after all, but, so, this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. It might surprise you that the man who wrote these words was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who is the very famous apologist, the beloved fiction writer, the defender and articulator of historic Christian doctrines from the last century, the man who was once described by a close colleague as the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. The man who had years previous to this wrote that he wrote a whole book about what God is doing in the midst of our pain and suffering, and he said, this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But now in the wake of the loss of his beloved joy, his wife to cancer, he finds himself in the midst of a lament. And that lament's preserved for us in his book that's called A Grief Observed. And there's something in our souls when we hear those words that we sort, of, we sort of check up on that a little bit, right? We say, is that okay? Is it okay for us to, to talk about God in that way? Did that happen to you as, as you were hearing those words? It happened to me as I was reading them too. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if maybe our souls or our mindsets as Christians today living in the U.S. in 2017 if our minds have started to get infected by this sort of strange thing that's happened in the Christian culture around us. Maybe you've encountered this as you've perused the shelves of a Christian bookstore, as you've listened to Christian radio. Uh, I know I have. There's, there's, there's something that's happening. Christianity is being sort of repackaged and rebranded as sort of breezy and fun, as this thing that's really bouncy and triumphant and sunny. So all the writing has to be like in bubble letter, and all the packaging has to be bright and pastel and cheery. Have you seen this? Have you noticed this? 
Joel Osteen hits the bestseller list with every book that he puts out. Books like Everyday Friday, Best Life Now, You Can and You Will, Become a Better You. And there's something in our souls that says, no, there's something wrong with that, right? We're supposed to be joyful, but not like that. The joy that we experience is more like what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he describes the Christian life as living in this tension of, of being ever sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And so we read the Bible. We, we, we understand that we are, we are, as Christians, we're people of the resurrection, but we still live in the brokenness of a fallen world. We live in the good of Easter Sunday, but sometimes our life feels a lot more like Good Friday, doesn't it? We read the Bible and we see people like Moses lamenting. We see Moses lamenting over the sin and rebellion of Israel. We see David lamenting over his own sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, his friend, and the subsequent death of his child as God's judgment on his sin. We see the laments of Elijah and Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul. We see it, and yet there's something in us that can't quite square all of that because we've been perhaps afflicted with what Zach Eswan calls a sobering prejudice against lament in our God talk. Psalm 13 is a lament, and in this lament, David wants to help us overcome that prejudice and to help us learn lament. So if you're able and willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read Psalm 13 together, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. And let the one who has ears to hear, let them hear it. Amen. Please take your seats. We love the Psalms. The Psalms speak to us in every season of life, every circumstance we find ourselves in. That's why we go to them so often. We find resonance in our lives. And there's different types of Psalms for different types of experiences. There's the hymns for times when all is well. There's the psalms of confidence for times we're sure that God's working in our circumstances. There's the psalms of thanksgiving for the times that we're overcome with joy and gratitude at God's deliverance. There's the psalms of kingship and the psalms of wisdom. And there's also the psalms of lament. And it's our hope over the course of this series to expose you to several different types of these psalms. And the psalms of lament are important there for our times of bewilderment, times when we suffer and we don't understand why, for times where God seems distant and we're confused. 
Listen to what Mark Futato says about this. He says, we do not always experience life as well-ordered or well-oriented. Can I get an amen? Anybody? Anybody experience life that way? Disorientation better describes life at times. The laments or songs of disorientation were written for such times. The laments are the psalms composed for what some have called the dark night of the soul. For times when weeping may last through the night, perhaps even night after night after night. The psalms of disorientation give us permission and show us how to let the tears flow. And we need to be discipled into this, I'm convinced. C.S. Lewis understood, David understood something that I think we need to understand, which is that this whole idea that God is not going to give us more than we can handle, we've talked about this before, that's a lie from the pit and it smells like smoke. God will always give you more than you can handle. That's the fundamental, foundational assumption of Christianity is that you can't handle it, right? Isn't that how we get in to begin with? We come before God and say, God, I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't, I can't handle the, this life. I can't handle the brokenness of this world. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. This whole idea, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's, that's I got this religion. And Christianity is the end of I got this religion. We need to learn to lament. The title of this morning's message is Learning Lament. There are times when lament is the only sound and coherent response that faith can offer to the brokenness of the world. I love the way Michael Card puts this. He says, Lament provides the only trustworthy bridge to God across the deep seismic quaking of our lives. And biblical lament is not complaint that goes nowhere. It's the people of God planting seeds of hope in the soil of exasperation and despair, expecting that the Lord will come through in the end. Maybe some of us need to lament today. Maybe some of us have pushed that down enough. We've distracted ourselves enough, and we need to do business with God over the brokenness in our lives. David's going to help us do that. And there's a key to understanding how this works. Look at verse 3. I want to say this even before we start making our way through this psalm. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. And something that Pastor Paul pointed out last week is that when you see that word Lord in your English Bible in all capital letters, what does that mean? It means Yahweh. It means the, uh, the writer of Scripture is using the covenant name of God, the name of the God who is faithful to keep every single one of his promises. Yahweh, the covenant God, my God, is who David is addressing here. He is the one who fulfills his promise. He is the one to whom he makes his lament. And here's the big idea. Here's what I want us to see. In lament, we process our pain before our covenant God. In lament, we process our pain before our covenant God. And Psalm 13 is going to show us how to do this. It's actually a very tight piece of Hebrew poetry. And it moves two verses at a time through three phases, three steps, three movements in lament. They're going to be our three points. First, despairing questions. Second, desperate requests, verses 3 and 4. And third, deep worship in verses 5 and 6. So first, despairing questions, verses 1 and 2. Because Yahweh is our covenant God, we bring our sorrow to him. We don't just 
shove it down. We don't just pretend like it doesn't exist. We hold it before the Lord. And that's every kind of suffering. It might be suffering because of your own sin. It might be because of the consequences of your sin. It might just be a result of your frailty as a person. And he gives us a very compelling example of what this looks like. We see he asks this question, how long, O Lord? And this is not, by the way, this is not polite asking. This is not the way you would teach your kids how to ask, how to like hail someone. It's not, uh, Lord, um, if, you, if it's not too much trouble, I'd like to say, how long will you forget me? Could we have a conversation about this? It's not that at all. He is wailing before the Lord. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 13 the howling psalm. He has no time to be polite. He's coming before the Lord. There's, there's four how longs, but there's really fundamentally three questions he's asking here. He has three questions for God. First, how long will you forget me and how long will you hide your face from me? That's one question. He's saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you hiding your face from me? You feel like you are far away. You're distant. This has been going on and on. What's going on, Lord? We need to remember who's writing this psalm. This is a psalm of David. What does Scripture call David? The man after God's own heart. David loved the fellowship that he enjoyed with God. He loved the face of God. Throughout the Psalms of David, we see this idea of, of beholding the face of God, the, this, uh, this picture of the intimacy he enjoyed with God. You don't have to turn here. Just let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm eleven seven: The upright shall behold the Lord's face. Seventeen fifteen: As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Twenty seven seven: You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, O Lord, do I seek. Thirty four five: Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. David loved the face of God, and he is a million miles away from it right now. When David asks God why he goes on hiding his face, he would have had in mind the great benediction from Numbers chapter 6 that God gave Aaron the priest to bless people with. When they would leave the temple, he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a promise from God to his covenant people that they would have his face as they were sojourning through the land as they were living in the midst of life in a fallen world. And that afterwards, at the end of their lives, they would be received into glory and they would behold his face. And David is experiencing and acutely feeling the absence of this right now. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you are saying this morning, how long, O oh Lord, will I have this chronic pain? How long, O oh Lord, will my, will my child be wayward? How long will I be crippled in the grip of anxiety? How long will I watch this loved one shipwreck their marriage? How long will I suffer the loss of my beloved? God, have you forgotten me? Many of you know this feeling. I sat with a young man a couple years ago member of our church who had had a series of surgeries for a medical issue that didn't seem to be helping. It didn't seem to be resolving. He was in a great deal of pain. He described to me the feeling of waking up post-op by himself in the room and just praying and praying and praying in the midst of his pain. He said, it felt like my prayers were hitting the ceiling and bouncing back to me. 
It scared the life out of me. All I wanted was for God to know how much pain I was in, how terrified I was, and I felt like he was a million miles away. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? Second question, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow all the day? The sense of what's being communicated in the original language here is I'm making plan after plan. I'm concocting scheme after scheme. I'm coming up with solution after solution, and nothing is working. Nothing can fix the situation that I'm in. There's no way of escape I can come up with. This also communicates the idea of isolation. I'm taking counsel in my own soul. I'm completely alone. Not only is he feeling alienation from God, he feels isolation from other people. You know, that's one of the first lies that Satan will assail you with in the midst of suffering, that you're alone. Your enemy would have you believe there's nobody in this room who knows what you're dealing with. There's nobody who could understand. There's no one who would take the time to love you and pray for you and encourage you. That's what Elijah thought after he had done battle with the prophets of Baal and God had won this decisive victory. Jezebel pronounces the death sentence on him. He goes into the cave. He weeps. He gives up hope. He says, God, I'm the only one left to maintain your cause. Nobody understands. I'm all alone. It's ongoing. It's sorrow all the day. Every day, every day, I'm confronted with this reality when I wake up. Third question, third how long. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, in some of David's psalms, we know what the context is. We know that he's on the run from Saul, who was seeking after his life, or he's on the run from his son, Absalom, who is seeking to overtake his throne. In this situation, we don't know exactly what David is experiencing. We don't know exactly what enemy he's referring to here. And actually, that's a real gift to us. Mark Futado also, uh, in that same book that first quote was from, says that the universal nature of the language of the psalms is a gift because we can... We can we can more easily picture ourselves in that situation. Whatever that enemy is for you, whether it's the rebellious heart of one of your kids, the estranged spouse who wants nothing to do with you, whether it's just your battle with your own struggle against sin, whatever that enemy is. Here's the point of these questions. We bring our despairing questions before the Lord because in lament we have to we have to sort through the sadness of the world that we live in. Jeff Metter says that our emotional inner life is a lot like that box of Christmas lights that's in your garage right now. You know the box I'm talking about. It's waiting for you. You put those things away so carefully last year, you spent 45 minutes making sure everything was perfectly rolled, but you know what's going to happen by the time you open that box, right? It's a tangled rat's nest of a mess. You're saying, who did this? Who came and, who came and messed up this perfect these perfect, these perfect Christmas lights. And the point of that is to say, if you're going to sort through those lights, if you're going to make any sense of that big pile of cables and bulbs, you're going to have to sit with it. You have to make your way through it. You have to pull apart each strand. You're going to have to check every bulb. You're going to have to sit with the sadness of your inner life if you're going to make any progress in these things. But we're not comfortable with that. We wave away the first impulse that's that starting to happen in our lives. The comedian Louis C.K. had a really, I think, insightful observation about this. He was on the Conan O'Brien show a few years ago. 
And he talked about this, this, this idea that for him, you know, he said, in, in your life, underneath your life, there's this sadness, there's this forever empty thing. It's this idea that, uh, that, that life is just so tremendously sad, and there are moments when we start to feel how sad it is. And today what we do is we sort of like try to get away from that by grabbing our phones, and we go online and we text somebody. We look to distract ourselves from feeling that sadness. And he told the story once of, of driving on the interstate. And he's listening to a Bruce Springsteen song. And he started to feel this sort of sadness well up in him. And, and he decided, oh, okay, I'm going to grab my phone and call somebody. And he said, you know what? No, just be sad. Just let it hit you. Just be sad. And he said he had to pull over on the side of the road and just bawled listening to this Springsteen song. Now, Louis C.K. is not a Christian. But I think he understands something that's very important, very insightful about human nature and about our souls. The soul looks for a way out. The soul is persistent by bringing that reality, whatever it is, whatever you're carrying, whatever you're holding, to the surface of your consciousness. And the challenge before us is to take out the earbuds, power down the phone, and listen to what our soul is telling us. Do you have space in your life for this? Are there any sort of rhythms or patterns of silence and solitude where you can really sit before the Lord and say, God, what, what's broken in me? What, what, am I, what am I sad about? What do I have sorrow in my soul over? But we don't just ask the despairing questions. We come before the Lord to make our desperate requests. This is our second point. Because Yahweh is our covenant God, we bring our requests to Him. We ask Him to move. Corresponding to the three questions in verses 1 and 2, in verses 3 and 4, David makes three requests. He's asking for God's face, he's asking for God's renewal, and he's asking for God's victory. This face that we talked about that's so far away from him, David says, consider me and answer me. Literally, those words mean stop hiding your face, look intentionally on me, pay attention to me, God. I need you to make eye contact with me. I need you to turn around. Show me that this isn't the way it is. Show me this isn't what my future is going to be like forever. I need you to check in with me, God. We've got a child who's in a check-in phase right now. If we're in a different room of the house, even for a little while, you hear, Mommy, Daddy, yes, we're still here. We haven't left. That's kind of what David's doing here. God, where... Where are you? Are you still in the building? Are you still at work in my circumstances? David asks for the face of God. He asks for God's renewal as well. He says, he says light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, Israel is in the midst of what the ESV calls a hard, it, it says that Israel's hard-pressed in battle. They're in the midst of a very difficult battle. And Jonathan, who is Saul's son, is fighting in this battle. He is famished. He is at a point near death. And he walks by some honey. And he dips his staff in the honey and, and eats it. And it says that he's refreshed by it. Uh, it says his eyes become bright. That's the imagery that David is employing here. He's saying, God, if you don't refresh me, I'm going to die. I'm hard-pressed in this battle. I'm not, not going to be able to make it unless you intervene here. He's taking a bit of a dark turn here. He's getting desperate. You ever been in that place? God, I need you to, I need you to act here. Or I don't know how I'm going to make it. His third request is for God's victory. 
He says, I need you to consider and answer me. I need you to light up my eyes, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. He's saying, God, don't let your enemies win. You got to remember, David's the king of Israel. He stood as a symbol of God's kind and, and, and godly rule over his people in Israel. He's saying, God, what about your glory? What about all the promises that you made to me and you made to your people? God, vindicate your own righteousness here. Don't let your enemies rejoice. Don't let them point and wag their fingers at us. Here's the point of these requests. Lament moves toward God and takes hold of God in prayer. Our lament isn't just complaining before the Lord. We make our requests known to Him. We ask Him to work in specific ways, in specific circumstances in our lives. You know, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. It's a very strange one on the surface. It's the parable of the persistent widow. He tells the story of this widow who knocks on the door of a judge night and day, and he is not a good judge. He's ignoring her, but because of her persistence, he eventually relents. He hears her request and grants what she wants. And Jesus, in the, in the, in the, in the, the, the verse that sets up the telling of this parable, Luke tells us, he told, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. In lament, we learn how to pray. We learn how to wait on God to act and to persistently come before him. Lord, please move. Please be at work in these circumstances. God's heart for you is that you would not lose heart in prayer. So our lament begins with despairing questions. It moves to desperate requests. Then in verse 5, it moves to deep worship. There's an abrupt, abrupt shift that takes place in David's language in verse 5. Lament seems to move David toward his home address. David was a worship leader. He loved to worship God. David was the man after God's own heart, and his lament reminds him of what the heart of God is really like. Despite all that's shifted and changed around David, God hasn't changed. And because Yahweh is our covenant God, we worship in hope, even before the answers to our questions come. He's asked three questions. He's made three requests. Now he's going to make three statements of worship. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord. First, I have trusted in your steadfast love. One of the ways that lament helps us is that it reminds us that we don't see everything that God sees. We don't know everything that God knows. And to belong to God is, in, is, to, is not just to, to know the true facts about Him. It's not just to believe that those facts are actually true. It's to entrust ourselves to those things. It's to entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of God. To stretch ourselves out on His promises and to cling tightly to who He is and what He's revealed about Himself. Listen, and because we don't see all that God sees and because we don't know all that God knows... It's not foolish, it's not wishful thinking, it's not Pollyanna-ish to trust the character of God even when we don't see how God is working. Do you know that? Have you trusted in the steadfast love of God? Do you trust Him? Not, I'm not asking, have you learned some verses about Him? I'm not asking, have you tried to be a good person? I'm not asking, have you tried to come to church as often as you can fit it in? I'm asking, have you trusted 
in the steadfast love of God. Because here's what happens when we trust in the steadfast love of God. Alec Mateer, the theologian, says, Trust brings delight even when nothing has actually yet changed. Trust brings delight. David's trust leads him to delight. He says, I will rejoice in your salvation. Not in your move in my present circumstances. In your salvation. Have you trusted and rejoiced in the Lord's salvation? Have you, have you thought about this recently? Whatever might be true in the here and now, whatever God's doing in the midst of your circumstances that you may or may not understand, you understand where your life is going, right? You understand that the final chapter of your story is already written, right? You've read to the end of your Bible. Listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've rejoiced in the salvation of God, the worst case scenario for your life is this. We saw it last week in Psalm 23. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And when my life is over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know that if you're in Christ, you are going to be alive billions and billions of years from now, enjoying the pleasures forevermore at his right hand? Do you know that that future is promised to you in Christ? You know, in our house, we, we say, it's going to be okay. And even if it has to be not okay for a while, eventually it's going to be okay. And in Christ, we know that that's true. I will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Some of your translations will say, because he is good to me. No matter what your experience is, worship, praising God is always the right response. Always. We've got to notice this. What's changed about David's situation at this point? What's different in verse 5 compared to what was happening in verses 1 through 4? What's different? Nothing. Except his perspective. He's entrusted himself again to the steadfast love of God. I have a friend who, when she was 13 years old, her father died. And in the aftermath of the grief surrounding those events, her mother abandoned her, kicked her out of the house, did not want to have anything to do with her anymore. She got passed around to members of the extended family, and she said that as she reflected on that time of her life, the words that defined her identity were orphan, abandoned, and a burden. But then as she got older, she met Jesus, and Jesus gave her a new identity and and new truths to understand about herself. Her situation didn't change, but at the same time, everything changed. And one day she was reading in Isaiah, and she came across Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 13, that says this. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? What do you think the answer to that question was for her? Yes. Yes, a mother can do that. But it goes on. 
even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I felt completely forsaken, she says, but the Lord never forsook me. And in Christ, I was given new words to define my identity. Adopted, chosen, loved, and cherished. When we trust in the faithfulness of God and the promise of God, it moves us to delight. It moves us to deep worship, even if our circumstances haven't changed. Martin Luther described Psalm 13 as describing that state in which hope despairs, and yet despair hopes. And there is no one who understands who has not tasted it. And so my question for you today as we move toward the end of of our time in God's Word is, is this. Have you tasted it? Do you know that that place, that state of mind and heart where hope despairs and yet despair hopes at the same time? If you don't know it, then one day you will. And if you're not experiencing it now, then someone close to you is experiencing it now. And believing that that's true, I want to I I encourage you toward three applications of this, three, three things to do in view of what we've seen in this psalm. The first is this. Make some space in your life for lament. Just make some space for it. I don't know what this looks like for you. It can look a lot of different ways. Just put your phone in a drawer and go for a walk. Go get in the woods. Just spend some time before the Lord, asking Him to search your heart, asking Him to show you where these, these places of brokenness are. Write a song, write a prayer out. C.S. Lewis in his grief and his lament wrote this book, A Grief Observed, that served so many people over the last 50 years. Bobby and Kristen Gillis were pregnant with a son whom they named Parker. Every doctor's appointment was great. There was not a single thing wrong, no reason to be concerned, and yet when Parker was born, he went straight into the rest of his heavenly father. He was stillborn. And in the days and weeks following their worst nightmare come true, Bobby and Kristen, who are on staff at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, who are worship leaders, they wrote a song with these words. They wrote a song of lament. And it says this. It says, Lord, when I think you're far away, returning silence for my prayer, when I'm reminded of old doubts that you still reign or that you care, teach me how to doubt no more, to know you're found by those who seek, and my emotions can deceive, chase away my unbelief. In the face of deepest loss, blinded by my bitter tears, broken by what might have been, a slave to things as they appear, then whisper peace into my soul in midst of pain and piercing grief. My own perspectives incomplete chase away my unbelief. Listen, you don't have to write something that's going to be published or made for public consumption in any way. But it can be really fruitful just to, just to communicate that. Put that on the paper. Share it with somebody that you trust that's close to you. Ask them to pray with you. Make space to lament. John Piper wrote this recently on Desiring God. He says, occasionally, 
Weep deeply over the life that you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Feel the pain. And then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life he's given you. Make space for lament. It's the first application. Second, process your lament in community. In that song I just read you the lyrics to, I love the two lines that say, my emotions can deceive, my own perspective is incomplete. We would be wise to not trust that our own hearts always have a clear picture of what's going on in our lives. We should not always trust that we're the best arbiters of our circumstances and understanding what's going on around us. What a gift that God's given us the church. You don't have to take counsel only with your soul. Get into a community group. Get, get close to somebody in here and say, man, I, I need somebody to walk with me through this. I need somebody to pray with me. Just this past week, I was, I was meeting with, with one of our elders and just we were both just sharing burdens that we were experiencing in marriage and in parenting and in ministry. And I just felt my burdens ease just, in, just from sharing it, just from being able to pray with one another. Can I just say, guys, our church has some incredible prayer warriors in it, people like Aaron Petcher and Terry Dudley and Kent Hamilton. Of all of the weapons I could choose, I would not choose any weapon over the prayers and the presence of the people of this church. Avail yourself of that in your lament. It's a good word for us too, those of us who are not in a place where we feel the need to lament. Be present to people who need that. When Ray Cortez was here a few years ago preaching, he told a story of right after he had planted Seven Rivers Church down in Crystal River, his brother unexpectedly died. Even to this day, there's no explanation for why he passed away. And he told the story of having to drive early in the morning up from Crystal River to Tallahassee, knowing that he was going to have to stand across his brother's coffin and look his mother and father in the eye and find some words of hope, some words of comfort. And he said, I just felt like I had nothing. Just felt like I had nothing. But he says as he drove into the cemetery for the graveside service, he looked up and he saw that standing by the gate was an older couple from his young church plant. An older couple who had gotten up early that morning, long before the sun got up and drove up to Tallahassee just so they could stand by the gate of the cemetery so that their young pastor would know that he was not going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. That's what God gives us in his people. We don't have to walk through these things alone. So process your lament in community. And finally, lament with your eyes on eternity. Because God is not slow to fulfill his purposes. He is not slow to fulfill his promises to us. But he does not operate on our timetable. He's the God of eternity. He exists outside of space and time. He knows things that we don't know. And there are some consolations that, we're gonna, that are going to have to wait until heaven. And that's okay. That's okay. The quote I read you from C.S. Lewis at the beginning of our time was from the beginning of that book, A Grief Observed. Let me read you a quote now from the end. As he works through those difficult questions, those difficult questions about God and his character and his goodness, Here's the conclusion that he comes to. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer. 
but rather a special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving away the question like, peace, child, you don't understand. He goes on, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see there was never any problem. In the midst of his grief, Lewis looked to the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Another person who lamented, it wasn't just Moses and David and Elijah and Jeremiah and Paul in the Bible. There's another person who lamented, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus stood on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, and he wept. He lamented over Israel's refusal to repent. Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from, dead, from the dead. He wept and lamented over his friend Lazarus, and he lamented from the cross. Jesus took upon his lips Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he really was forsaken on the cross so that you and I would never be forsaken. Hebrews 5 says it this way, In the days of his flesh, when he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus prayed the laments to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus prayed the laments over Jerusalem at the tomb of his friend Lazarus at the cross. He was forsaken, and for a moment, God did not answer his prayer. He allowed him to be given over to death, But in the final analysis, what happened? God did hear his prayer because he raised him in triumph over our enemies of Satan, sin, and death for us. And because he was forsaken, you and I will never be forsaken. You may feel like God has abandoned you. Brothers and sisters, God has not abandoned you. Because Jesus sang the laments, you can sing them with confidence, because he gives you something better than answers to your questions. He gives you himself. And it's enough. It's enough. Let's pray.